Hey, welcome. Glad to have you with us. Glad to be with you. Dave Roland is going to be with us. Uh, Dave has uh, several topics. One that really uh, I'm really curious about is affirmative action in the Supreme Court. Uh, we'll chat about that. Also, uh, the Pacific Legal Foundation. I was talking with a couple of attorneys there yesterday, uh, and Dave Rowland came up and uh, gives you an idea just how uh, you know in in what esteem they uh, they consider his talent. Uh, that they actually used him in a court case that we we sort of followed here, uh, but I'll I'll get into that with uh, with Dave a little later. In the meantime, retirement. How old do you want to be when you retire? You know, I, I I'm a little late for mine. I I wanted to retire at 23, but I I didn't quite have the funding for that. But I'm just curious. What is your target date? You're going to wait till you're 70. You're going to go at 68. Where do you want to? You know, when do you want to retire? Brian, do you have a, a, a date certain? Do you, you think this no, is it really? Huh. You're going to just work till you fall over? I mean, I, I guess everybody likes the thought of not having to work. But have you really thought that through? <laughs> I mean, I don't think that I could do that. Just not do anything. I mean, yeah, I'd find plenty of things to oc- occupy my time with at home. But uh, no, I need kind of like something to do with my something life. to do you're afraid if you're not moving forward you stop moving at all yeah pretty much interesting and as far as money is concerned i think that's a different question depending on who you ask i mean do you have debt that you need to pay uh in terms of you know mortgage payments that kind of thing most people would like to think oh when i retire you know i can i can live uh rent free but no there's there's things that you have to take care of oh yeah you got to pay uh, Medicare because uh, there's a Part B, and then you have to have prescription and this and that. Uh, nothing is free. Nope. Nothing is free. Um, I figure a couple of million in the bank, and my house paid off, and I'll I'll retire, and that'll be Thursday of next week. <laughs> Yeah, maybe not. Hey, listen, uh, Brian, I thought you might be interested in this. California voters have a, a chance to override lawmakers trying to control their personal choices uh, with a vote on what they're calling Proposition 31, which challenges um, their state ban on flavored, well, they say flavored tobacco. Uh, it bans the sale of flavored tobacco products, including flavored e-cigs. Uh, with exceptions for hookah tobacco, premium cigars, and loose-leaf tobacco. The whole ban has been uh, sold as a way to stop big tobacco from marketing products to children. So if you wanted to go into a vape store in California and buy, uh, say, Carney 4, uh, right now you you would be able to do that. Um, Well, actually you could because the Carney 4 that I vape is not a tobacco product oh no they it don't make that sin- synthetic uh, they don't they nicotine. don't make it's tobacco free oh they don't make that distinction huh? no no uh, they don't they don't well, even though it's uh well what if i got the nicotine from green peppers it's, it's no no, no it's still, still not a, uh, still not good huh still not good what about tomatoes i get the nicotine from there i, I didn't know tomatoes had yeah, nicotine they do yes oh there's no. a lot of a lot of things that contain nicotine that uh, folks just assume that, oh, no, they it, nicotine is only a tobacco product. But, you know, the vape industry got smart and they, <laughs> they found, 
figured out a way to go around it. But here comes the government to the rescue. Say, oh, no, any nicotine products we're going to label as tobacco. Yes. Well, that's that's the way to make it look. it's It's their way to make it look as, you know, evil as they can. Uh, so in the state of California, they just don't—they don't have the vape shops like uh, like we have here, like Como Vapor. You like mean? what? What? Como Vapor. They got a couple of uh, locations here in Columbia. Of course, I, you, I, you knew that already. I didn't remember asking you for the name of any vape shop. Yeah, I was just letting you know in case you forgot, because uh, you know how could I forgot? You remind me every chance you get because you your memory just is, isn't what it used to be. I'm sorry. What? <laughs> who who are you talking, talking to? about? Retirement and stuff like that, and yeah. So yeah, yeah Como Vapor, hundreds of flavors to choose from, all kinds of vape uh, flavors. Which one are you on right now? I I don't remember uh, having this. Uh, you know this this sounds like an ad that you're running. No, no. You, I'm just answering questions that you had about the Como Vapor. Custard Monster. All custard right. Monster. Wow, yes. that's interesting. Yes. Is it kind of like uh, vanilla or it's custardy, right? <laughs> <laughs> why don't you go over to Como? I, it, oh, damn it. Why, <laughs> why don't you go to your vape shop and find out what they got? I am. I'm going to go over there today. Are you? Uh-huh. All right. Uh, so, uh, it, it, you know, it's silly that uh, that they have this mentality that they're going to save you from yourself and what they're doing and and here's this is what's really curious people who don't smoke or vape are going to vote on whether or not people who do can enjoy <laughs> the flavor they want makes perfect sense that this is in their the, mind this is the very definition of democracy uh, this is the problem with d- d- democracies and this is the beauty of the founding fathers with a republic. It says no matter how many people vote to tell you you can't vape whatever flavor you want, it doesn't matter. They don't have the authority to stop you. But when you have a democracy, this is what happens. It's it's frustrating, really. Anyway, uh, listen, the uh, the economy is just because we had this quarter of GDP growth, it's it's misleading. Uh, and I'm telling you right now, it's misleading. Because we've got another problem, and that is the trade deficit that made this look like the, like the, uh, the, ex- the economy expanded. It didn't. And it's going to reverse itself. It, it, it don't get fooled into believing this. Uh, from the Heritage Foundation, ordinarily we think about increases in GDP as benefiting Americans, but that's not always the case. This is uh, E.J. Antoni, a, a, an economist over there. A rough metaphor for the narrowing trade deficit is a consumer being too poor to shop somewhere. It looks like international trade slowed considerably in the third quarter, hardly a sign of prosperity. It is it is uh, a, a temporary glitch here, uh, and it doesn't uh, it doesn't actually it does it. What it does do is it tells me that the Fed is likely to increase interest rates because they're not they're not seeing things slow down. 
And it's already, do you see with the record that where we're at now, it's like 7-plus percent to buy a house? Holy moly. That's crazy. That gets expensive. And it's probably going to continue to go up. Yeah. Uh, I don't see any reason why it wouldn't based on their mentality. But no, no, don't, don't cut back on spending. Just keep throwing money at it. Idiots. All right, we're up against the clock. Quick break. Dave Roland, MoFreedom.org. On the Gary Nolan Show on the Zimmer Radio Network. It is 1119. Glad to have you with us. Dave Roland with us. MoFirst.org. And uh, uh, MoFreedom.org. I'm sorry. I got I got uh, Ron Calzone and uh, Dave Roland uh, crossed. Uh, and now I got it straightened out. So, listen, before we get going, I had a conversation yesterday with Kimberly Herman uh, over at uh, Southeastern Legal Foundation. Dave? Yeah, she's she's fantastic. I love her. Well, it's funny you say that because that's what she said about you. She had great respect for you, said that uh, you were a, really heaped a lot more praise on you than I'm willing to do on the radio because <laughs> uh, you've already got a big head. Every once in a while, I'll host a dinner uh, at CC City Broiler, and I bring in some friends of mine, including Dave Roland, and wherever the conversation is hot, it's around Roland. Uh, they're all... Uh, listening to Dave as he uh, tells uh, legal stories of uh, what he's encountered and what he sees coming, etc. Anyway, uh, the reason I was talking uh, to Kimberly Herman was because of a case that you shepherded through the courts uh, dealing with Kim Gardner. Right, yeah, this this was our John Solomon case. Um, so for listeners who aren't familiar with the story, John Solomon is a uh, award-winning journalist in D.C., and he wanted to look into the communications that he believed Kim Gardner to have had with prominent Democratic donors, including George Soros, um, before she decided to charge former Governor Greitens with a couple of felonies. And um, the idea being that we don't want our prosecutors making decisions about who to prosecute and what to charge based on the political donations they might be getting, right? So uh, Mr. Solomon asked for these records, and Kim Gardner's office stonewalled him for the better part of three years. And uh, Mr. Solomon at the time was represented by Kim uh, Kim Herman and Southeastern Legal, and they came to me and they said, hey, we know that you know you're kind of the guy for government transparency in Missouri, would you team up with us on this? And so I was happy to do so, and we ultimately did get a favorable judgment for Mr. Solomon. Kim Gardner has had to turn over um, hundreds of records that she was trying to keep hidden, and uh, fortunately, Mr. Mr. Solomon was able to publish a story this week uh, kind of revealing some of what he found from those records, but also making the records available to the public. So if you go to justthenews.com and click on the story, you will also be able to see exactly the records that we recovered from Kim Gardner's office. So that was pretty exciting, but I do want to let people know there is still the possibility that we will be able to uncover more. Um, one of the things that we noted is that the records that they produced did not include any privately owned devices um, that were used by Kim Gardner or the attorneys in her office. In other words, although the law requires um, the public governmental bodies to retain 
communications about public business, even if they are taking place on private communications devices, like a, a home computer or a private cell phone or something like that, um, they didn't produce any of those records. And so we have asked the judge to order them to turn over those records as well. The judge has been sitting on this for about three months, and that's that's a pretty long time um, to be weighing what I felt like was a pretty simple legal issue. I'm wondering if maybe he's waiting until the election uh, in a couple of weeks to get past that before he issues a ruling. Um, I don't know if one way or another if that might be part of his consideration, but um, Given the unusual amount of time that he's been sitting on this, um, it may be that there are some additional considerations going into it other than just making the decision and writing the judgment. So her pursuit of Eric Greitens, former governor of Missouri, um, might have been influenced by people outside the state and politically motivated. It's, it's certainly possible. Yeah, it's absolutely possible. Now, I do want to be careful to say that that doesn't necessarily mean that Greitens did nothing wrong, but even if there was some illegal activity there, the decision should be made purely on the merits, not based on what your political donors are wanting to see, right? Um, so, so, you know, I, I have previously expressed my own concerns about um, Governor Greitens and how he handled himself under these circumstances. But but that's not the point. The point is um, you can't have political donors influencing decisions about who gets prosecuted and who, do, who doesn't. Right. All right. I just want to bring that up because uh, it, it, it was, I thought, uh, pretty revealing uh, and I'll be curious to see if anything else gets uncovered. If it does get uncovered, if something else pops up from uh, a cell phone or a private laptop or something like that, uh, that's, that's likely to be even more explosive. Not, not guaranteed, but more likely, I would argue, because that's the sort of thing you would want to hide. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So um, we are hopeful that the judge is going to let us get access to those records, but it is not guaranteed. All right. With that in mind, a New York judge reinstates workers fired over COVID vaccine mandate. These are government workers, right? Yes. Um, so, well, the original the original um, requirement was, I believe, for both uh, public workers and for private employees to be vaccinated if they were going to be working in New York, but the uh, private mandate was repealed at one point along the way. And so now the issue that remains is what do you do with these um, city employees that were fired because they declined to get the, the vaccine? And a judge in New York has just said you have to reinstate them and you have to give them back pay. So this is nine months worth of, of back pay that these uh, employees would be entitled to. It is a big, big deal. And the, the reasoning that the judge applied, <clears throat> I thought was really interesting. He said, you know, look, if you're actually concerned about public health and you really believe that um, requiring vaccination is, you know, critical to preserve the public health, you're not going to build exceptions 
into your mandate. And this this mandate that New York adopted was riddled with exceptions. And um, the judge basically said, well, look, what's happening here is is the city is just kind of picking and choosing who's going to be punished for declining to um, to get this vaccine. And that's just arbitrary. And, and we can't have government making arbitrary laws. So um, th- this is not the final say on this case. Uh, the Court of Appeals in New York is going to take this up, and, and it's not certain that the Court of Appeals is going to see it the same way. But I think it is always notable when you have a judge kind of stick his neck out and strike down something the government did, especially when it takes place in a traditionally blue area like New York. Um, it is really notable that you have uh, a judge sticking his neck out like this. And one of the things I thought was was particularly interesting and telling about uh, the policy that, that New York had adopted is they ended up building in celebrity exemptions. So they, they said, oh, well, you know what? Professional athletes are no longer required to do this. And, oh, if you're making a movie, uh, you're no longer required to do this. So basically, people who had a lot of money and influence got exempted from the requirements while ordinary blue-collar workers were not exempted. No. Um, and that's just fundamentally unfair. No. You're, you, 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 surely you jest. There'd be a, a two-tiered system. Yeah, I know it's unthinkable. Oh right? yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm stunned. Really, unbelievable. Um, so that's going to cost taxpayers a ton of money for work that uh, didn't get done. Uh, yeah, if the decision stands, it certainly will. I mean, we're talking uh, several thousand workers, and you know, if, if we extrapolate out three quarters of a year worth of salary and benefits, um, that would be a a pretty sizable uh, award for for the plaintiffs in this case. So, yeah, the the taxpayers are going to end up bearing the brunt of this extraordinarily foolish government policy. Sure is good to know they've got all that extra cash from the feds. Because they, you know, (laughs) yeah, boy. Uh, All right. uh, So there is an affirmative action case. And I am opposed to affirmative action. And I don't think it should ever have been passed. At least not for the private marketplace. Uh, I, I just, I see no reason. In fact, most. If you look back at the 50s and 60s and look at the bias and, and uh, the racist attitudes of employers, the biggest offenders were the government. And frankly, that's where this law or affirmative action uh, should should apply. But this, uh, this has uh, spilled over to college uh, uh, enrollment and things like that. And we'll talk about that in just a couple of minutes. Uh, you also have an animal rescue advocate uh, suing St. Louis County. I'll be curious to hear about that story. And if that's not enough, Biden's loan forgiveness. Um, you know, Part of the reason that uh, we've hit the pause button there is the state of Missouri. We'll see where that's going to lead. Dave Rowland is our guest. It is uh, the Gary Nolan Show on the Zimmer Radio Network.
This is the Gary Nolan Show. It is 1135. Dave Rowland joins us, uh, MoFreedom.org. Uh, he is an attorney that you can talk to if you need to sue the government to protect your freedom, because he is the guy. Uh, and uh, let's talk about the, the Supreme Court uh, a challenge on affirmative action. Yeah, this is a really, really big case. So you touched on it a little bit before the break. I, I want to go back and provide a little bit of historical context. So as you noted, um, we had a huge problem um, before about the mid-50s where governments all over the country were requiring segregation. They were requiring discrimination both in their own hiring and in uh, the private marketplace. And that, of course, had horrific impacts on um, communities of color all over the country. So in the mid-50s, the U.S. Supreme Court says, you know what, discrimination is no longer okay. Like the Constitution does not allow you to, um, to single out people of a different race and treat them differently under the law. So that ended the overt discrimination then the problem became, uh, folks were saying, well, but the private marketplace is not hiring minorities the way that we would like them to do, so let's have the government require them to hire minorities, or at least to uh, put a thumb on the scale in favor of certain minority groups. So that was what was called affirmative action. And affirmative action held sway for a few decades, um, and then there started to be cases coming through where white people would say, look, I lost this job or I was subjected to discriminatory treatment because I'm white. Like it's, all, it, it, it's not right to discriminate against uh, minority groups, but it's also not right to discriminate against people um, who are part of the majority group simply because they are part of the majority group. And a couple of those cases started to succeed. And so um, the, the question then got into universities and their admissions um, requirements. And the U.S. Supreme Court ended up allowing um, some level of consideration to be given to an applicant's race. But in this very strange decision um, called Grutter from uh, around the year 2000, uh, this this decision ultimately ended up saying we are going to give a pass on universities that take race into account in their admissions, but we only expect that this is going to be necessary for another 25 years. Okay, so they basically said some level of racial, racially motivated decision making is acceptable, but it will only be acceptable for about 25 years. Very strange case. Um, because one would think, Gary, if a constitutional principle applies at one point in time, it will apply at another point in time. One doesn't think of there being deadlines or, or stopping points for constitutional principles. Um, but that's exactly what the Supreme Court said. So we are now getting close to that 25-year deadline that Justice O'Connor made reference to. What makes this case, and it's going to be heard next Monday, so interesting is 
almost all of the earlier affirmative action cases came in the context of a white student complaining that they had somehow been disadvantaged by um, the decision-making of a university as far as their admissions were concerned. But in this situation, the evidence very clearly shows that Harvard University and North Carolina, the University of North Carolina, actively discriminate against Asian people people of Asian descent. And it's one thing conceptually to say that because white people have been the majority and they have been the primary beneficiaries of racism historically, we have to have um, affirmative action in order to balance the scales. It's one thing to hold that concept in your head. It's an entirely different thing to say, we now need to discriminate against this other minority group because one minority group is not doing as well as we'd like for them to do, or at least they're not getting the opportunities that we would like for them to have. So it kind of pits the interests of one minority group against the interests of another minority group. And that's what makes this case so complex and challenging, I think, for the universities. Uh, um, universities so, used to work primarily on meritocracy. You got a, a student that's got good grades, good background. Um, well, meritocracy and racism. I mean, racism was a big factor. I mean, not just against African-Americans either. Um, Jews were excluded from a number of universities for a very long time. Um, women were excluded from universities for a very long time, and that didn't have anything to do with merit. So I think, I think it is important to note that there were very clear discriminatory intentions in the admissions policies of a lot of these schools. I think the question is, does that now justify additional discriminatory intentions going forward and and i don't think that it does who's who's uh what law firm do you know what law firm is this uh another libertarian um no this is uh i believe it's a private firm that is handling this case um i know a lot of the groups like the freedom center have filed amicus briefs in this case um and i know that there was one private donor in particular that was bankrolling um several of these similar lawsuits um so the the group that filed the lawsuit is called students for fair admissions um but i don't know who they are being represented by off the top of my head i apologize for that no you don't have to that's a it's an odd question. The only reason I bring it up is that it seems more and more often when I find that a, a, a law firm uh, is having success uh, or is at least fighting for freedom, it turns out to be a libertarian group. Uh, it seems like the libertarians are the only ones out there fighting. Well, I, I appreciate the thought and, and you know, as a representative of a libertarian group, I do like to think that we have an unusual level of success. I do feel like it's important to note that there are also conservative groups out there that are fighting on certain cases. And yeah, but it's, it's mostly, it, mostly I keep hearing it's a libertarian group. Um, 
Well, you know, I mean, I, I chalk a lot of that up to the success of groups like the Institute for Justice and Pacific Legal Foundation and Goldwater Institute, where they have been remarkably successful at defending individual liberties in court. Um, but they are also really, really good at public relations. And so when when one of these groups has success, it is also more prominently noted in the media. Um, and so I, I think that, that that may be part of it as well. Uh, by the way, I don't know if you saw that the Institute for Justice has filed a feeding the homeless lawsuit just this week. What? A, yeah. a, a libertarian organization fighting again? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's no, just coincidence. True. Don't worry about it. All right, let's... Well, uh, Oh, go ahead. All right. So, so let's move on. When, when is, you know, when is this uh, uh, expected to hit this week or next week, this court case? The argument is going to take place on Monday. Maybe next week we can talk about how the argument goes and, and I can kind of offer a, the first guess at how the case is going to come out. But, but yeah, the argument's going to be on Monday. And then I would expect this will be one of the decisions that probably doesn't come out until late in the spring, uh, maybe, maybe late June, um, when the court is getting ready to pack up and leave for the summer. Well, what I've learned from you is that just listening to the questions doesn't really give you an indication of which way or what the thinking is uh, Not of always, the justices. No. Yeah, it can be confusing. All right, well, listen, i got to take a, a quick break here. We'll do that and come back and find out about an animal rescue advocate suing St. Louis County. What What is that all about? Dave Rowland, our guest on the Gary Nolan Show. It is uh, 1040, uh, no, it's not. It's 1149. You, you don't have that extra hour. It's 1149. Gary Nolan Show. Dave Rowland is with us. Uh, and uh, an animal rescue advocate is suing St. Louis County. Why? So this is fascinating, Terry. Uh, apparently, the this uh, St. Louis County animal shelter was having a lot of problems, and people were wanting to look into why. So uh, there had been a couple of lawsuits filed about how the animal shelter had handled some things, and there had been a several Sunshine Law requests filed trying to get access to records um, uh, about the incidents that had taken place there. And the shelter had just refused and refused and refused to turn over the records that would have shed light on all of these problems that it had been having. So then finally, when uh, a court ordered them to produce some of these records uh, in response to a discovery request, suddenly they said, oh, you know what we found out? We had a pest infestation and we had to destroy all of the records you were asking for. So, so well, they that destroyed, uh, they destroyed... That 20,000 pounds of paper records without <laughs> getting permission to do so, without explaining their justification in advance. They're just gone. And and so uh, my friend, Mark Pedroli, who is a great fighter for government transparency, filed this lawsuit saying, you can't do that. So uh, it's intriguing because we've never heard of a case like this where the government just up and destroys 20,000 pounds worth of records 
that were clearly required to be preserved because they were the subject of litigation and they were the subject of Sunshine Law requests. Um, and, and one of the things, I, I chatted with Mark about this when we first found out what had happened. And the thing is, is even if you assume that there had been this pest infestation, they could have taken some measures to preserve the records at least for a little while before they were destroyed, and then you can you can make copies of those records before they're destroyed. Um, like, and you could have notified the courts of what was going on, and they just didn't do any of that. And it all seems incredibly shady, Gary. Um, so the interesting question that's going to be presented here is not only are there rules against what in the courts they call spoliation of evidence, destroying evidence, but the Sunshine Law also specifically says that you are not permitted to destroy records that have been subject to um, a request and potential litigation. And so um, I am really eager to see how the courts end up handling this. Um, because I think that this is a, a really blatant violation of the law, and it should incur some significant consequences. But um, but there's no guarantee when you go into one of these situations because their argument was, well, these records, the boxes were full of cockroach eggs and you know mouse droppings, and it may be that the courts are just so, they, they think the whole situation is so icky, they're going to say, oh, well, yeah, of course you had to destroy those immediately. Uh, I don't think that would be the correct outcome, but it's possible that the judges could go that way. And it's what's really surprising is that it is the government. It is the county. It's, it's not a privately run uh, animal uh, sanctuary. It's a government right, yeah. Correct. This this is a, a publicly owned and operated uh, animal shelter. It has since been uh, taken over by a private nonprofit group, but but for the longest time, it was in fact a publicly owned and operated shelter. Mississippi's missing search warrant. What is this? How could you have missing search warrant? That doesn't make sense. Uh, yeah, no, it doesn't. So one of the um, hottest topics in criminal justice over the last few years has been police reliance on no-knock warrants, where basically instead of knocking on the door, announcing who you are, and waiting for someone to come and answer the door, um, law enforcement has been relying more and more on just busting in and securing the area and then asking questions later or providing its justifications later. Um, this, this process, this, this practice kills people, especially when the law enforcement happens to go into the wrong house. So people uh, fear for their lives. They fear that they are being robbed because they don't know who's coming in. And when they try and fight back, they end up getting killed. That's what happened uh, with Breonna Taylor in Kentucky. And so in Mississippi, um, where they have been using these no-knock raids, the public defenders and the defense attorneys that have been representing uh, clients in cases have been asking for copies of the warrants, and you are supposed to be able to get this. Like the reason you have a warrant in the first place is to give the public assurance that um, the proper procedures were followed. 
before they invaded somebody's home, before they violated somebody's property rights by coming into their home. And what they have found is that in a disturbing number of situations in Mississippi, they just haven't been keeping the warrants. And and so when wouldn't you they be, don't wait, wait, have... Wouldn't they be a matter of court record? Uh, they should be, yes. They should be, but they're not there. And and so this is a huge, huge concern um, because, I mean, not only does it go to questions about um, the integrity of the courts themselves, but it also goes to questions of simple competence. I mean, you know, like you said, these are supposed to be court records. They are supposed to be maintained, you know, what in the world kind of court uh, administrator is not making sure that these records are being secured and kept for for future reference? And um, yeah, it, it's a very concerning situation that they're they're working on down there. Um, and and I hope that it's going to result in some reforms. That I'd love to see reforms that say no more no knock warrants at all, but at a bare minimum, um, you've got to guarantee that you're keeping copies of the no-knock warrants so that you can go back and, you know, oversee the process and make sure that it's not being abused. Well, yeah, I would think you as a, a, an attorney of all people would recognize uh, if you're defending somebody and, and you're trying to figure out if, uh, if, if they were, law enforcement was legally entitled to whatever evidence they got, you'd want to look at the warrant. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a pretty big deal. It's it's pretty crucial. And, um, yeah, I, I'm kind of dumbfounded at the idea that these records were not maintained somehow. To, to put it in context, in Missouri, we, of course, have been fighting for seven years now against the uh, Cole County Prosecuting Attorney's Office. We know that they hold a number of uh, warrant applications going back decades because this is the kind of thing you hold on to. And they still haven't produced them to us, but we know that they've got them. So, um, I mean, hopefully uh, we won't have this problem in Missouri that they're having in Mississippi, but we're going to be keeping a close eye on it. Well, if anybody can get to the bottom of it, I'm sure it's Dave Rowland. Dave, thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Gary. All right, buddy. Take care. Glad to have you on. Uh, if you got a problem with the government, if they're taking your freedom, stepping on your toes... MoFreedom.org. Uh, check in with Dave Rowland and uh, see if we can reverse it. Uh, tomorrow is Frost Your Buns Friday. We never know what's going to come up. We have our own topics, but uh, listeners throw out theirs, and it gets kind of fun and challenging. So that's what's going to happen uh, tomorrow. In the meantime, we got Glenn Beck, Sean Hannity, Randy Tobler. Tomorrow morning, wake up with Brandon Rathert. Whatever it is in life that you want, go out and get it. Don't wait for the government to drop it in your lap. You make it happen. You seize the day. Carpe diem and Gwen, baby. Honey, I'm coming home.